When I sat down with Stephen Soderbergh, one of the first things he told me was that he'd been listening to our podcast by way of research. It slightly unnerved me, but we hope you'll agree his homework served him well. Such was the magnificence of the man's company. I'm Edith Bowman and you're listening to Soundtracking, the weekly podcast in which I speak to writers, directors, producers, actors and composers about the music in their work. Remarkably, Stephen has been all of these things at one stage or another. Specifically as a director, he's renowned for his use of both needle drop and score with Thomas Newman, Cliff Martinez, two of his go-to composers. His latest project, the fantastic Logan Lucky, sees him reunited with David Holmes, with whom he struck up a most fruitful relationship on the Ocean films. And it's with Logan Lucky we begin, and David's original score medley that features on the original soundtrack to the film. Music is integral to your filmmaking. It's such a big part of what you do. It always has been. But let's start now with Logan Lucky because it's a wonderful soundtrack you've got on that, both in terms of the score that David's or his band have created, which I believe has got Noel Gallagher on guitar on there as well. Yeah. At what point do you start thinking about the music and does it become part of the conversation for you with your filmmaking and with Logan Lucky in particular? No, it always starts very early in the case of Logan. I was trying to describe to David the feel that I wanted and the only word that I could come up with really was rusty. He started to compile tracks for me to listen to, which he normally does, but in this case, for whatever reason, the volume of material that he was turning over to me was significant, uh, and significantly larger than normal. Why do you think that was? I don't know. I'd have to drill down a bit on that to find out, but what's fascinating about it is even when it's not necessarily tracks that would have a place in the movie, it's always interesting stuff. Where he finds these things, I just don't know. So many of them I've never heard, never heard of, don't know anybody that's heard of them. I guess he just has this endless well of material that he's continually sort of archiving himself. So I began this process of whittling down 350 tracks to 200 tracks, down to 50, down to 20, trying to identify the ones that were appropriate and thinking about, oh, where that would go. And this is all happening before we've started shooting. Wow. And then he also did a track dump on me while we were shooting. And so then I had more stuff to listen to. And then I would let him know, here are some tracks I think are absolutely going to find their way into the film in case he wanted to start pulling stuff that was similar that he hadn't sent me, or if he wanted to start thinking about what kind of band he wants to put together to record his music.
ended up not composing as much original score as he would for me typically. Yeah. The great thing about David is he views the soundtrack as being entirely sort of under his purview, which is true. Yeah. So I don't think he has any ego about like, oh, you know, we're, we're buying all these tracks, you yeah. know, because he found them. So, you know, one of the things we did was it says music David Holmes as opposed to music by David Holmes yeah. because he and I sort of talked about it and I thought, this sounds more accurate, you know, which yeah. is that you're responsible for all of the music, but I don't think it's accurate for people to think that you wrote all of it. Yeah. And so that's just the way that sort of balanced out on this one. Yeah. Flashing Lights, which is the song that ends the film, is one that I identified very early and very specifically as being the concluding song in the film to the point of timing the last shot to fit precisely in the 13 seconds before the downbeat. stopwatch <laughs> where I would go start stop to make sure that the credit would crash in right as the bass and the drum showed up Amazing. so sometimes it helps when yeah. you know that kind of stuff ahead of time the John Denver track as part of the narrative was that in the original script yeah that was in the script country roads and so I started going back through his catalog to see if there was another song that I could sort of use to kind of lay some groundwork for Country Roads later on. And so Some Days Are Diamonds had a nice sort of opening, I thought. And also thematically, without being too on the nose, it was just kind of a nice additional kind of Jimmy theme, yeah. you know what I mean? So that was a good moment realizing I like the way that feels as just a beginning. When you ask how I've been here without you I like to say I've been fine and I do but we both know the truth is hard to come by and if I told the truth that's not quite true some days a diamond, some days a stone, sometimes a hard times won't leave me alone, sometimes a cold wind 
I really hope it makes people go and listen to more John Denver as well, because it was my childhood. My dad used to play it all the time. People my age and people younger, I think, don't even know how prevalent he was in popular music in the 70s. Like, yeah. he was huge. Yeah. Like, John Denver was gigantic. Jerry Weintraub, who produced the first three Oceans films, managed him for a while, and I got some great oh. stories about being on the road with John Denver at the absolute height of his popularity. It was pretty insane. You can imagine the uh, yeah. music business in the 70s when people could still keep secrets and <laughs> yeah. like everybody didn't know everything. The behavior was pretty insane. Yeah. Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Life is older, older than the trees, younger than the mountains, growing like a breeze. Country roads take me home to the place I belong, West Virginia. I mean, I, I was walking about listening to the soundtrack just, you know, as a piece of music and as a whole, and it's so colourful and it's so brilliant. And that Groundhog's track, I had to keep kind of repeat and repeat because it is brilliant and it's used so wonderfully as well. Yeah, I'd never heard it before. Yeah, so, me neither. Yeah, and I'm glad I got to hear it. <laughs> the Oceans film and it's been a joy as well to revisit those films in, in kind of preparation of chatting to you and the sounds of those films and they have a real specific sound and you talk about time and that track at the end of, of Logan and the Oceans films are great in the way that you use music over dialogue or under dialogue 
I do radio shows and it reminds me of being a DJ and trying to hit a vocal on a record where it's a certain beat you want to hit or a drum or, or whatever. It's so meticulous and beautifully done. Yeah, the process was pretty similar. In the case of the first Oceans film, which was the second time I'd worked with David after Out of Sight, there were a couple tracks that I'd identified, including some of his, that I knew I wanted to use, and we began this sort of back and forth of him sending me things and me trying to describe to him what I had in mind. Exhibit C, the belt he's flossing is Ten ought to do it, don't you think? You think we need one more? You think we need one more? All right, we'll get one more. Since there was a thing as movies, music has been sort of attached at the hip to cinema. Even before to, people to cinema. Could speak. You no, know, exactly. Yeah. I mean, as soon as it sort of moved out of the Nickelodeon where you looked into the machine and became something that there was a screen involved, music became a part of it. You're either in or you're out. Right now. Las Vegas, huh? America's Playground. Its importance in a film virtually guarantees that it's going to be abused a lot. And I see that a lot. You know, sometimes I'm frustrated at how music is abused or when it's used in a sort of insecure or obvious way. Yeah. I always feel like, wow, why would you do that? Why are you having the music essentially do exactly the same thing that the film is doing instead of trying to create like this third thing? Now, it depends on your approach to score because there's a version of scoring what I call not as a diss, but what is referred to sometimes in the business as Looney Tunes <laughs> scoring, yeah. which is a reference to the Warner Brothers cartoons of the 40s and 50s in which the music is very, very consciously accenting and augmenting every sort of on-screen action. A door closing, somebody putting a glass down, you know, slapping themselves in the forehead. There's a little, like, sound that goes with all of that stuff. Mm. That can be a very effective way of scoring a movie. Jaws is probably one of the best examples of that approach to scoring, and it's incredibly effective when somebody intelligent is on both ends of this yeah. conversation.
bad version of it can be excruciating to sit through. Yeah. And then there's a more ambient approach mm -hmm. in which the music is not mirroring directly what's happening on screen, but is more a tone to create a kind of feeling, an overall feeling. And sometimes that can provide for an opportunity to take the score and go totally against the grain of what the scene is. A couple of times I've solved a problem by taking that approach and going, well, maybe I should just go do a 180 here and try and approach the score that's actually counter to, to what this scene is supposed to do, just in an effort to try and like unlock a problem. I remember seeing Gallipoli in 1981, which was scored by Jarre electronically. And I remember being struck by the fact that, oh, Peter Weir's using an electronic score on a movie about Gallipoli. If you can do that, I guess you can <laughs> kind of do anything. Yeah. And it really worked. And it really kind of kept it from feeling like this mannered period piece. David Newsome was created a new genre of music, I think, with the scores for Ocean's Eleven. It's got such a precise and brilliant sound, and and the marriage of that sound with the stories and the characters, it's just this wonderful, wonderful synergy to watch. Yeah, if you talk to anybody about the Ocean's films, one of the first things they'll mention is, is the music. It's sort of that central to the universe, the sort of Ocean's universe. It's so crucial to, to really the storytelling. To me, when you get it wrong, if you get it two degrees wrong, you might as well be 180 degrees yeah. off. Like, it's that important and it has to be that right. Yeah. How did you meet? How did that relationship start? I was introduced to him through a music supervisor on Out of Sight, Anita Camarada. She had given me a bucket of things to listen to based on my descriptions of what I was trying to accomplish. And there were some David cues in there. And I started laying them in and really liked them and thought, I know he's never worked on a movie before, but Cliff had never worked on a movie before either. And that turned out pretty well. So ultimately, I think it's about talent and taste. You know what I mean? I feel I can explain what I want pretty clearly, and as long as I'm dealing with somebody who's who's talented, like they'll figure it out. And so I asked David if he wanted to, to just do the whole score since I was temping so much of the movie with his music, and he said, sure. All right. over to the States and put his little group 
together. You know, it's a really, he works in a really fun way, which is to kind of, once we've identified where we want music and what the sort of basic vibe is, you know, he gets a band together and they sort of come up with a groove and they play it to the picture, but it's kind of live. It's not a kind of typically orchestrated approach, but it's very fresh and it feels very alive. And, you know, these musicians that he finds are exceptional. We've talked about David quite a lot, Cliff Martinez, who I'm a huge fan of as well, who you've worked with, Thomas Newman you've worked with as well. You know, How do you know who's the right person to work with and the right fit for the film? It's tricky. I mean, Cliff was someone I met kind of accidentally. He was he was working with a friend of mine who, who owned a sound editing uh, company. And I knew all these guys, and my friend Larry Blake, who mixes all my films, knew all these guys, so I would hang out there. And one, one night he was there working with one of our sound editing pals, creating like a source cue for the background of a movie that they were editing, sound editing. And um, I liked the sound of this cue and, and I was introduced to Cliff and we started talking and you know, he was a drummer and I don't know, we just kind of immediately kind of hit it off. And, and when Sex Lies came around, I reached out to him and I said, hey, you know, would you be interested in getting involved with this? And he said, sure. And then we started working together. I had a, a sort of, I had a one-night stand with Ross Godfrey, which was very satisfying. Um, but um, it's really been Cliff or Tommy or David. Yeah. Sometimes you know exactly what you want it to be, and sometimes you don't. I've had the unfortunate experience of once of having to throw out an entire score, which was really, really difficult to do. Mm. But usually I have an idea that I can articulate somewhat, or at least I can play something that I think sounds sort of like what I want, 
But then I've also changed directions. I remember on Contagion, I was sending stuff to Cliff and I was temping with a certain kind of score that as we got further into the shoot, I realized, no, this is too dramatic, it's too serious. In my mind, I was making a horror movie. I wasn't making a drama. Yeah. And when I sort of reminded myself of that, I called Cliff and I said, oh, I know, I'd been temping a lot of stuff by this composer, Michael Small, who, who, who wrote some great scores in the 70s. And I, I emailed Cliff and I go, okay, I'm, I'm starting over again. We're taking a different approach. And it ended up being the sort of approach that we used in the film, which was yeah. much more electronic and much more propulsive. Yeah. So that, that happens occasionally. when you flip the temp score that you were using to try and kind of get back into what you were trying to do. Are you editing as you're filming then? Because I had the pleasure of chatting to Adam Driver yesterday and he was talking about the pace that you work at and he loved it. So you're editing as you're filming? We're cutting every night wow. and looking at everything and that's helpful. It's just helpful to know if you're getting it or if you're not getting it. It's still early enough in the evening to get on the phone and go bring that actor back tomorrow morning because I want to do this again or I need an extra shot. That happens often enough to make you appreciate what these advances in technology allow for, you know, that you can iterate that quickly and sort of really see it in a pretty close approximation to its finished form. Yeah. It is a real luxury to me. I wish I'd had it earlier. I wish I'd been able to work this way sooner because the work is better, especially the early films. I didn't even start editing the first three films I made until we were done shooting. It's, it's just unthinkable to me now. Some people still work like that, but... Yeah, you know, I want to... I want, to, I want to see if there's a problem. I think it's the sort of credo they have at Pixar, be wrong as quickly as possible. Like, I'm a big believer in that. Yeah. And so the ability to shoot digitally, have the material within an hour of wrap, cut it together, look at it, and determine if we're okay yeah. is huge.
sometimes I figure it out late, right up until a couple of weeks before we started shooting the Nick. Um, no one knew what the approach was going to be, and a lot of people were asking, particularly the network, like, what's the deal with the score? And I said, I don't know yet. And I was, I was playing possum a little bit because I had an idea that I wanted to go heavily into the electronic space but I didn't want to say that out loud until I'd shot something and it was able to put yeah. some music up against it to make sure it was going to work. And then once I did that, I said, it's going to be this and it's going to be Cliff. Also, I'm a big believer in there are certain pieces of music that get used in such an iconic way that I feel like, okay, that's off limits now. You can't use that song anymore yeah. after it's been used like that. And then sure enough, a couple years go by and somebody else uses it and you just think, <laughs> you just look bad. Like yeah. you're just going to get compared to that other version that everybody acknowledges is yeah. pretty definitive, you know, but people still do it. Still now when I hear um, a little less conversational, I think about your films. Same thing with other pieces of music. They've been used so perfectly with films that you shouldn't even touch them. Yeah, that's my feeling, but um, <laughs> I can't solve everybody else's Can't solve world soundtrack problem. problems. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. A little less conversation, a little more action. All this aggravation ain't satisfaction in me. A little more bite, a little less spark. A little less fight, a little more spark. Close your mouth and open up your heart and maybe satisfy me. Satisfy me, baby. Baby, close your eyes and listen to the music. Dig to the summer breeze. It's a groove and I can show you how to use it. To come along with me and put your mind at ease. Hey, a little less conversation, a little more action. All this aggravation ain't satisfaction in me. A little more bite, a little less spark. But it's really fun to work on that aspect of the film and to be continually surprised at how transformative it can be and what an incredible tool it is. It was fascinating to me when the dogma movement happened in the 90s and their whole thing of like all available light and blah, 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 and no music. I thought, wow, that's interesting. You could have music, but it had to be music that was being played yeah. on screen. It had to be like source. And it was kind of effective for what they were doing for a while. And then I think everyone realized that can't sustain. Like you can't yeah. hobble yourself as a filmmaker like that forever. But I listened to your conversation with Sophia Coppola and her talking about The Beguiled and about how certain scenes she decided like actually scoring that makes it feel Cheesy. the wrong way yeah. yeah it's actually diminishing what's going on instead of enhancing it yeah. and i think you always have to be on the lookout for that 
you do this great thing which has become the now infamous kind of yearly list of what you watch and listen to and um, last year there was quite a few soundtracks on your list. The Knack with John Barry was on there, Bullet. Yeah, pretty great. Oh Lalo Schifrin, yeah. So good. and uh, Touch of Evil, Mancini. Great list. There yeah, I mean, wide range. I mean, you're going from composers to a composer, Mahler, who's not a film composer, but creates music that's extremely cinematic. In fact, so powerful on its own that you really need a movie like Death in Venice and a filmmaker like Visconti to not be completely obliterated by it. composers are appreciated people know who they are people like movies and television it's not like you know they're they're toiling away in complete obscurity but you listen to those other soundtracks and I go my attitude is I put that music up against any music that anybody's written ever you know what I mean you can't not be impressed and just go that's just great music period yeah and that's where I feel like maybe they don't get as much credit as say classical composers or contemporary composers who write for opera or theater or they're kind of hiding in plain sight you know what i mean yeah and they're and these people are working under deadline they don't have patrons they're like hey whenever you're done with that concert <laughs> let us know yeah, yeah. you know like they have to crank this stuff out jerry goldsmith writing chinatown in 10 days no yeah that's ridiculous wow 
Like, that's one of the... He wrote it in 10 days. Like, that's insane. Yeah. I mean, that's just one of the most beautiful soundtracks anybody's ever written, and it was done under extreme duress because Polanski had thrown out the other score and they were done. So film composers and television composers, they're people out there doing extraordinary work that yeah. deserves to be listened to and remembered, and in my case, you know, reused somewhere else. I look forward to what's on your list for this year as well. It was funny looking back on your 2015 list. It's pretty much Elvis Costello. It was an Elvis Costello year, but yeah, that <laughs> happens. Um, you know, that was one of those early influences that I think when you're young, especially with music, but almost with any art, but especially with music, because music is so powerful and it's not an assumption. There have been brain scans done that prove that music lights your brain up in a way that is totally unique. All the parts of your brain sort of light up. So somebody like Elvis Costello, seeing him on Saturday Night Live give what turned out to be an infamous and amazing performance was kind of a seminal moment. And I immediately thought, well, I'm all about that guy. Like, whatever he's doing, I want part of that. Calling Mr. Ozzel with the swastika tattoo, there is a big I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, there's no reason to do this song here. Shining the light, not dialed doing anything my radio advised. Whenever one of those late night stations playing songs, bringing tears to my eyes, I was seriously thinking about it. I'd never see a winner switch because it's old. 
that I identify with. When you look at the breadth of what he's created and the fact that he's clearly bored easily and, and has no desire to just keep doing the one thing that people want him to do, yeah. I can relate to that. I loved Logan Lucky. I came out the screening just bouncing and happy and just loved it. Is there going to be more because it's left open? Depends on how it does. <laughs> you know. I want more. Um, I certainly would love to see how Joe Bang ended up in prison. Can I commend the, you as well on giving Daniel Craig the opportunity to play a role he's never played and I don't think anyone ever would have apart from you. He's brilliant. Yeah, he's so, pretty funny in it. So funny. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. In thinking about what uh, what other story of this the, out of this universe I would tell I'm I would be most interested in how did Joe Bang end up in prison and so that would be where I would go is is the Bang brothers like pre incarceration. Mm -hmm. I love the fact that Noel Gallagher's on this on the Yeah, I mean <laughs> if you can get Noel Gallagher, I think you should get Noel Gallagher. It seems like yeah, definitely. What's great about working with David and why I think the collaboration works as well as it does is we both have interests that sort of move out into different areas and so the projects become this sort of compendium slash referendum on both of our tastes mm -hmm. you know what I mean like even in Logan Lucky like John Fahey is somebody that I've always liked a lot and I thought oh there's this one spot where this this one John Fahey cue may work and I've been waiting 30 plus years to have a John Fahey track in a movie and I finally found it you know so I think we both have these kind of pocket lists yeah. of songs or tracks that we're like maybe this will be the one where I get to use that yeah there are so many other moments we haven't even touched on um, Shay which I loved as well um, and we didn't go outside but hopefully that means we can have part two another time sir I'll be back Stephen thank you so much and congratulations on Logan Lucky thanks so much
the soundtrack to Logan Lucky, that's Revolt of the Dyke Brigade by John Fahey, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Stephen Soderbergh. My huge thanks to Stephen for taking the time to talk to us and for doing his research in advance. Logan Lucky is on general release around the world now with David Holmes' compiled soundtrack available on Editions Milan. Please head to edithbowman.com for a link to a Spotify playlist for this show where you can hear the tracks we played in the order they appeared. My website is also the place to subscribe to this podcast and catch up with our previous episodes, just as Stephen did. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And please do rate us on iTunes if you get a minute. Next up is Australian theatre director Benedict Andrews, who makes his cinematic debut with Una. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Mm-hmm.